Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have a reposting of a fun conversation that took place three years ago. Uh, it was actually the first time that I met uh, Annie F. Downs. First time I saw my friend Jonathan Merritt in person, uh, along with Aaron Nequist. Never had actually spent uh, physical space with those two. And uh, Jason Miller's on the podcast as well. Uh, there was actually another person who is recently on the podcast, our friend Manda Carpenter, who I, I don't know why we didn't get her to actually talk on the microphone during this podcast, but she was there just around hanging out and like an idiot, I didn't ask her to to talk. So anyway, nevertheless, um, if you, uh, are just catching up, one of the things that I do every July is I try to take, uh, the entire month as a month of rest, of study, of preparation and preparing, because the thing about life is that you have seasons, You have seasons of harvest and you have seasons of sowing. And if you're always talking like I find myself often doing, uh, there comes a time that you kind of run out of stuff to say. And so this is my month where I try to be a little bit more silent. I try not to uh, do anything new with uh, preaching or teaching. And I use this to to learn, to study, to prepare uh, for a lot of stuff that I'll do the rest of the year. And so that's why I repost a podcast in the month of July as uh, a way to keep some content out there that maybe some of you have missed some important conversations that have taken place in the podcast over the last few years. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's nothing new, uh, because I need to, uh, to take a break, to be silent and, uh, to take care of myself. So that's what I'm doing on the podcast this month. Uh, this is the famed Jason Palooza podcast. Here we go. I'm oh so goodness. embarrassed by this. You have <laughs> a, Hold on, you have a... I've just had one too many gigs where, like... It's terrible. They, they won't, like, tape your face. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, no, we're not doing that. Like, I tape my... What's wrong with taping your face? I don't... <laughs> what kind of headset do you have? It's a DPA, but they don't, they don't make the model anymore. It's one that you, like, bend to your head, and then it fits like a dream. Is just a single ear? No, it goes all the way around. Can I borrow one when I come to your church? I, no I only have the one and I molded it to my head. Like you mold it like, you like know, it's bent you know to fit in, my head. in football when you go to the dentist and you get them to make a special mouthpiece for you? Did you just ask me if I know something about it? You're just teeing that up. It's not nice, Luke. It's not nice. It's that spike. It's not Is nice. it the same thing like you go to that? Did, yeah, did someone help you? Did you really do something special to put it on to fit you? I just head? spent like an hour bending it. That's all. <laughs> okay. All right. I can't tell if they're interested or mocking you. <laughs> I, I can I tell. Can't tell. <laughs> Why does it have to be no, different? No, no, you know what it is? As, as people that speak regularly, they're both mocking me and interested. And interested. They're both yeah. jealous and yep. a little annoyed at it. Yep. I think it's both. As my man Richard Rohr would say, it's non dualistic <laughs> thinking. Uh, yeah. Interest and mockery. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so this is going to be uh, a fun Are podcast. We yes, we're, we're recording. Holding the microphone. Gosh. Okay. okay. Let's do um, it. I just feel real special. Starting. So we've, we've got four microphones and five people, and I'm not sure how this is going to work. Um, Annie, why don't you go? You're going to introduce everyone. Oh, great. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Okay. That sounded fun. What am I going to, just how I yeah, decide you, to you intro? Can, in, yeah, introduce everyone. Okay. To my right is... It's a podcast I can't see. But I'm letting them picture it in their hearts. Okay. So to my right... Because <laughs> in your heart is where we picture <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I'm a seven. You don't know. It's different down here in the sevens. Um, to my right is Jonathan Merritt, acclaimed author and hot off the press news writer for religious news services. Mm-hmm. To his right, Aaron Nequist, brilliant 
church leader, and family man. How do you feel about that? What, you want me to say other things? I feel good. Okay. Family man. Yeah. Yep. Luke Norsworthy. Did I say it right? Mm-hmm. That was good. Impressive pastor from Austin, Texas. Really puts his heart into his work. <laughs> Great podcaster. We had a long conversation. I'll talk about it later. Great podcaster. Also future author. Book coming out in about a year. Is that public knowledge? I, yeah, it is now. Okay. To his right. I like that you said nothing about me being a parent. Like, Aaron's oh. a good dad. Like, <laughs> yeah. dad. Luke has three beautiful daughters who respect him highly. I did see Aaron FaceTiming with his family an hour ago, and I've not seen Luke make any contact. With no, we family. did see Luke make contact because he sent his wife a picture of the food we were getting to eat. Remember while, while she is home feeding her children? They're doing breakfast for dinner. That's delicious, though. Pancakes for dinner. To his right, my left, which makes the full circle, Jason Miller, pastor in South Bend, Indiana, of South Bend City Church, smart guy, prolific writer, good human. Are you speaking that word for me? But but we haven't come full circle because somebody needs to introduce Annie. Annie is a... uh, Say my name. uh, (laughs) Annie Annie Downs, you may know her as Annie F. Downs, uh, at... Annie F. Downs. Uh, you may know her as America's Sweetheart. Also a, uh, a beloved authoress. And uh, we're, glad, <laughs> we're glad to have her with us today as well in seeing this discussion. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. This has been great. Glad to be here. Yeah. And the reason we're here is because of a gathering that I think should be known as the Jason Palooza. Jason Palooza, for sure. Yeah. We're all here because Jason said, come to me in Indiana and I will give you rest. And so we came here. Uh, <laughs> Let me what, teach you, for I am humble. And yes, exactly. What, what made you call this gathering? It started with a couple of friends like Jonathan and Annie coming to the Georgia Notre Dame football game. Let's not talk about how that went. And uh, I just thought, hey, if friends are coming to town, let's have more friends come to town and let's do some, some fun stuff. So mm-hmm. here we are. And so we started today off uh, with an outstanding practice led by our own Aaron Nequist. And um, this is, that's the stuff that you're going to be writing about, like your book is about. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the whole idea of moving from belief space to practice space. So, what are the things that we can do when we're together and separate to open ourselves up to what God is already doing? Mm-hmm. So. What's what's the title? What's the title? Look for pre-order well, purposes. Well, thank you for asking, uh, Jonathan. Um, Pre-order, there it is. <laughs> no, the book the book is is called the Eternal Current. Mm. The subtitle is how a practice based faith can save us from drowning. Mm. And so, um, thank you. So, yeah, next August. So it's a year away. But, yeah. Yeah. Pre-order for your birthday. My birthday's in August. Well, I'll My birthday is also in August. Is it really? Uh-huh. What day is yours? The 4th. Mine's not. I, I like how you had to think about it. Well, I'm like, you like, looked eight. off to the... No, I've got an 8, a 14, <laughs> and then a 25th is mine, and I've got two daughters. Oh, how about that? I feel like you yeah. got three birthdays. Actually, how about that? you know what? I, I, I share a birthday with Barack Obama. Fun fact. Really? Enjoy that. Take that. Put that in your pocket, listeners. That one's for free. <laughs> that one's for free. <laughs> Bonus points. Okay, uh, so... Jonathan, any uh, internet scandals that you've created recently? I haven't, um, I haven't seen you. <laughs> I haven't seen you in the last two weeks. I haven't created. I haven't Have created you said any on fire lately. And nothing. I've said nothing on fire lately. Um, no, I. I don't think I've. I don't think I've done anything since post Peterson. Post Peterson. There's not been any post Peterson drama. Interview mm-hmm. and like crickets, and then you do one, and all of a sudden. It's picked up everywhere. I'm not sure what the difference was. Courage. 
<laughs> kidding, kidding, folks, kidding, folks. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Believe it or not, I'm sober. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, uh, Jason, I was wondering if yeah. while we're here, yep. wh- what is the town that we're actually in? We're actually oh. in Michiana, Michigan. That's we're not near a real New name. Buffalo. That is not a real name. <laughs> it's not a real town. It's not even a town. It's like a, I don't know what it is. Do we have enough buffaloes already? I feel like we're already at the limit. We didn't need a new one. We didn't need a new one. Okay. Were you thinking while we're here that maybe we could do the Michiana statement? Maybe oh something like that we could sign. What would it be about? I don't know. I mean, this is your world, Jason. No, South Bend's my world. Okay. I brought you to neutral turf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's up to you. Okay. <laughs> okay so uh, last time you were on, yeah. uh, your church was just starting. Yeah, we hadn't even... We might have had like one vision meeting, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now? And now, yeah, we, we've been doing kind of... We're kind of moving into the full life of a church just sort of right now. Like we... Started doing Sunday mornings in April, and mm-hmm. here we are. I know one of the reasons you asked Aaron to be a part of this is because you've been incorporating some of the same stuff to a degree. I know, Aaron, you were at the yeah, first right. gathering. What do you call them? Yeah, so, yeah. So what, what's the word? You? Experimental gatherings. Okay, but yeah. like on Sunday morning, join us for a... For a gathering. A gathering, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. what made you bring Aaron in? For your first experimental gathering. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, I mean, Aaron's been a friend and a mentor for a really long time. And um, just on a personal level, I've been really impacted and helped by the things that he's been um, learning and embodying in ministry around a practice-based faith. Um, first of all, I, like, I don't know anyone who's better at articulating these practices in a way that's the opposite of any kind of guilt or burden or obligation, but more like opportunity and invitation. And that's been really, really... Um, like grace soaked for me and um gosh there's a lot there um uh, part of our church like one thing we have going on with stop and city church is i feel like a lot of friends are going through some deconstruction or in, in some part of that maybe leaving church behind is a part of that like man the beliefs package that i got handed something's not quite right there something doesn't add up doesn't all fit together quite right and so i guess part of the good thing you could do is work on like process those beliefs but while you're at it, maybe you could take some of the pressure off of them mm-hmm. by investing some of your faith in practices and prayers where it's less about getting your mental furniture arranged quite right and more about your heart being formed in the process. So anyway, if we're going to create a church for people who are, maybe the beliefs package stopped working for them or maybe they're not sure how it fits together now, we, uh, we really want to create space for other things like silence, prayer, reflection, meditation. So... Um, our first experimental gathering, we just wanted to say, here's a little taste of what we're, like a concentrated dose of one of the, one of the threads that'll be woven into South and City Church. So Aaron came out and led us in a full-on practice. We, I think we had like 10 minutes of silence all together in that. And yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a long sit. It yeah. was awkward and beautiful and yeah. uncomfortable. What I love about what they did, though, is they said, we're going to try a number of different experiments. Mm-hmm. And we're not saying that any of them are, this is our new church. We're just saying... Let's experiment. Let's yeah. try things. It was really cool. Yeah, we, it was a good night for us. It was funny. Um, so I've been in South Bend for a long time, right? So I think a lot of people might have come with me on this adventure, maybe not knowing exactly what this is going to be. And so one of, the, one of the reasons I invited Aaron in was to scare people away. And man, did it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, we just want to say, hey, look, we're, we want to be a great church for anyone. We know we're not a great church for everyone. 
So right out of the gate, let's um, just expose you to a few concentrated doses and let people figure it out. And honestly, did anybody hate it? Like, did you hear? I mean, I'm sure some people were like, oh, that's not my thing. I don't think anybody but, hated it. Okay, yeah. you didn't hear any? The, the, the biggest thing I heard, because we did some Lectio Divina, some, right? yeah. I think we did like two minutes of silence and two minutes of silence and five minutes of silence. And then we silence. did five, yeah. yeah. And I remember long. in the room feeling this, uh, you know, the first couple of minutes, there's some anxiety, there's yeah. some discomfort, but something like settled in the room, like at minute three of that five minutes. And um, after the, that, the liturgy was over, we just kind of hung out for a few hours and Everybody I talked to said something along the lines of, I don't know what was happening in the silence, but something was happening in the silence and I need to dig into it. So there was a provocation there that I think people kept digging into after the night. And that was really, that's that's what we were going for, right? That was really good. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so you're part of Granger, which is a big evangelical church. Uh, Jonathan, your dad's like a mega Baptist, mega church pastor. And so you've grown up, right? Right. Yep, this is true. All that's true. Aaron, you were at mega... Churches, yep. right? For the yep. Were Annie? you at a big church, Aaron? Yeah. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, same. And so you grew up... You too, Annie? Mm-hmm. Annie? Really? Okay, yeah. I grew up in the Church of Christ, so we never had, like, guitars or drums. I mean, growing up, like, I thought it was a sin. I thought there was a very good chance of the five of us, I was the only one going to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That uh, that still may be true. <laughs> to be determined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say I changed that, though. I'm just saying when I was a kid, I first became aware of it. <laughs> And so for me, like, a lot of people from my tribe are like, oh, we're just really excited to have, like, the, the big um, a band on stage, being able to do a Hillsong-type uh, worship service. And, and y'all have had that. You, you've led it. You've been participating in it. And I know all of you have had experiences where this has been very meaningful to you. Like, Mary, at the church you're part of in New York? Yes. You guys do some more practice-based worship stuff? Yeah, we were. Yeah, in fact, Aaron was with us. How long ago? Yeah. Just early July. Early July, so yeah, so he's he's been there. Um, uh, David uh, Gunger is there, and we're we're a liturgical, historical expression, I guess you'd say, of of church, and and we do a lot of that sort of contemplative mm-hmm. practice stuff in worship each week. We take Eucharist every week. We do the prayers of the people. Um, we have a generosity liturgy. We do corporate confession. And the forgiveness of sins and those sorts of things. And I've found coming from low church evangelicalism, Southern Baptist style, we're sort of um, uh, anything goes so long as there's an altar call. It was, it's been really refreshing to me to have, you know, uh, my pastor when I first moved to New York was AJ and uh, AJ Sherrill, who was now at, at Mars Hill where you used to be. And uh, he asked me recently, he said, hey, how are things going at TGC, and I said, well, they're, they're just sort of the same, you know? There wasn't some exciting new graphics package or, you know, like, thing to talk about. Yeah. And he says, I love that. That is, it's so healthy. It's just like eating lunch. Yeah. It's just the thing you do every day, and, that, and there's actually something in the routine that's really, really healthy rather than always trying to chase novelty. And, I, and you, you can't really get that until you experience that. And having experienced it for myself, it's something where I don't think I could go back to what I used to be a part of. In two weeks, the uh, Episcopalian church across the street from us is inviting us to join them for a service. Back in July, mm-hmm. they came over to our Church of Christ church and joined us because they were out of power. And mm-hmm. so me and an Episcopalian priest co-preach together. And so I'm going over there, and they have St. Matthew's Day, the special service, and I'm preaching, and I'm, I'm wearing a robe for the first time. Um, you mean besides I, your bathrobe that you wear every night? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I didn't think you were going to talk about that. Um, 
but there's a lot of interest and enthusiasm about doing mm-hmm. something like different. Mm-hmm. And why do you think there's so many people, especially younger evangelical type people? I say evangelical because Brian McLaren said it that way, and it sounds really like erudite. So it, that's why I do it. Um, why do you think there's a reaction to now being drawn to these sort of practices, Aaron? I know you've as a leader, why do you find this to be something that people connect to so much? Yeah, well, I mean, I was just, I was noting that um, Jonathan was saying what we love about it is it's not chasing novelty, mm-hmm. but some of the framing of the question is, oh, this is a new thing that people are excited about, mm. and that really is a tension. Um, I feel that all the time. There is a sense, like, for me, who grew up with rock and roll church, it is so new and fresh to hear from something very old and ancient. But if it's just old and ancient as the new style, mm-hmm. that will ultimately um, just be an, another style, and then something else will come. Um, I, I'll tell you, I was trying to explain why I'm interested in this to my wife a while ago. We were driving, and it took, I was like rambling, and I couldn't, I was trying to talk about liturgy and all this kind of stuff. And she goes, it sounds like basically you just want to serve a well-balanced meal every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I realized... Like, of course, my wife in one perfect sentence sums up what I was trying to say in 20 With minutes. With a food metaphor. With a food <laughs> metaphor, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I realized, like, I had been serving one meal, four pop songs and a hymn, every Sunday. And that is a great meal. Like, there is nothing wrong. It's, it's a healthy meal. But there's all these food groups that it doesn't include. Mm-hmm. So obviously that breaks down at a certain point. But I think there's something about we know there's more. Mm-hmm. We don't have to reject what was. Um, or what we've been used to, but there's more. So, yeah. How, so Jason, as you're doing this at a church that's grown a lot, mm-hmm. like 500 people in two services now, mm-hmm. it, it seems that the smaller space is more conducive for a practice-based gathering. As you guys continue to grow, how are you thinking about scaling it to yeah. a couple hundred people in a, in a room? Well, like a, another thing that I actually kind of learned from watching Aaron um, at the practice was I remember, I think the first time I was at the practice, just visiting, there was a point where, Aaron, I think you said, does anybody want a prayer prayer in the room? And, like, so I, I was, like, the programming guy for these um, sort of highly designed services for a very long time. And I think, we wouldn't have said this out loud, but somewhere along the way, I, I got kind of formed into, the more you can kind of control this experience, the better you can create it for everyone. So Aaron does that maneuver, and there's this thing inside me that's, like, freaking out. Um, but there was something really beautiful about it, I realized. So one, another thread, not just liturgical practice or, or historic roots or whatever, but for us is um, turning down the dial on control a little bit. And I think it, that ties to participation, and it ties to invitation. And um, uh, so, like, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is we're, we're growing pretty quickly. And I think if we were in a much bigger room, I think we might lose something that might be essential to the nature of what we're doing right now. I don't, I don't know, but I, I just, I'm thinking about that. So we're in a room that seats about 200, 225, but we'll do an open floor. We'll, we'll do some sort of, um, some things like that. I don't, I don't know if it works in a room with a thousand. What do you think, Eric? Oh, I do. I, (laughs) I know that it, certain things don't because I've made that mistake in spectacular fashion. Mm. Um, one example is we did, um, we tried to do Lexio Divina, mm. um, in a 7,200 seat auditorium, <laughs> wow. not the best idea. <laughs> um, so yeah, there is the, the, the room matters. Mm-hmm. Were you sorry 
sorry you tried it or were you no, glad you tried it? I w- everyone sorry. else was sorry I tried it. <laughs> but I wasn't. It. I, I love that we tried it. I just think it. there has to be space for you experimental things. Experimental gatherings. Experimental things never, like that, right? like, failing in a spectacular way, mm. then it just, you're not um, taking those risks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but you got to... So here's a question to you. W- will you limit the size of the room? I mean, um, we're, we're, we've been, you know, we've been, we just moved into a, a, like a long-term home two months ago. And it's just growing a lot faster than we maybe prepared for. So I, I've had about a minute to think about yeah. it. Um, I, I, I'll just say this. If we were going to do it, we'd have to sit down and really press into what we'd lose um, and think about that. I don't know. Lose if what? If we went to a bigger room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so there's a line that um, was used against me when our church was adding an instrumental service. And it was uh, a line that Rachel Held Evans wrote in like a Washington Post piece when her book was coming out. Mm. Uh, and I think I've seen it like circle around. And maybe it wasn't her book too, but like millennials don't want cooler church. Mm. Um, they want like more engaging or something. There's something about... Um, okay, if you had a, a band on stage, you're just trying to be cool, and young people don't want that. It's, and, and I don't think Rachel would be saying what her words were used to be argued for. Okay, so I'm not putting this on Rachel by any means. But there are a lot of people that show up for the service that have four pop songs and a hymn. And there are a lot of people, especially even in the millennial generation, that, that connect to that. How do, you, how do you create spaces for both of those? How do you, how do you allow both both people in the room to have meaningful encounters? Mm-hmm. Anyone can answer that question. I think, it's, I think I don't have an answer, but I think the other question is not only how do you allow them both to have their individual encounters, how do you encourage them both to experience the other one? Mm-hmm. Right? Because I do go to a more mega church thing. And so Aaron pushes me to experience the practice side that I don't do naturally, that I, that I love, but I have to... It's a different muscle for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, that one of you that actually have an answer can say is not only, do we, not only do we need to figure out how we encourage them to be themselves, but how do we encourage them to see God in the other too? Mm-hmm. That's good. I, can I say, I, um, so this past winter, I was launching South Bend City Church. And so it's my first time sort of helping create this kind of expression that we're describing. But at the same time, I was actually coming down to Annie's church a couple weeks a month preaching at her church, which was this sort of other kind of expression. And um, it was so moving to me to be putting a lot of heart into both expressions mm. and being reminded of the fruit that's coming from both expressions and hearing stories every week at Crosspoint or at Sopin City Church um, about how people's lives were, were being moved by both expressions. And it, it might have been a really, really healthy thing for me because sort of coming from a church that had the one expression to create a church with this other expression, I think it's possible I could have had a chip on my shoulder or a bit of a... In the, in the work, I might have forgotten about all the beauty from these different expressions while I start to create this particular one. I don't, I don't know how you marry them, but I was really happy to celebrate them. Well, I'm, I'm being pointed to for those, so I'm, I'm on that little bit on the spot. Um, I you, what would I say? What you would have I say? A microphone in your hand. Well, I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm, I don't know what to say. All right, no. I I guess the the only things that come to mind. I mean, I'm I'm like uh, I guess I'm the cultural guy, and I don't know if this helps explain things. But I would just I think sometimes you just want to name 
uh, the ways in which we discuss things, and that helps us to get at it. There are two sort of lenses that I think are present that should be named. One is sort of the glorification of youth culture. So the idea that like what draws millennials should be better is a very weird thing. Like nobody, nobody um, gets to speak at Catalyst because they're reaching the elderly. But like if you go and you reach like millennials, somehow it's better. And that's and there's a cultural that's a, that's part of the zeitgeist that we should just name. Um, there's like this ethos that says if you attract young people, that's better, and and that that you're sharper, you you're doing it right. That somehow youth equals right, um, and, and and that's also I think weird, um, sort of in in the from a biblical theological standpoint because I don't know that we have that um, generational lens in terms of e- ecclesiology when when sort of the New Testament is fleshing this out, even in early Christian history. I don't know. I think that's a very unique Western white. Um, perspective. So for me, I, I, I would reject maybe, or I would question the premise of, well, yeah, but millennials are attracted too. And then you have that word attracted, which I think is a very post-industrial mindset that uh, if, and I, and I heard this growing up and evangelicals are great for this, that, that, that um, growth is a sign of health. Um, and that's a, that is a very sort of, um, I think Henry Ford would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I don't know that like disciples at Pentecost cowering around tongues of fire would sort of say that like, and of course, but then you, then you get multiplication, right? You get multiplication out of that. And then in church history, sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. So to create some sort of a rule that grow sometimes growth, um, health equals health and growth are the same thing. And sometimes it's not. So I would just sort of challenge maybe, um, some of the mindsets that are attached to the question. Does that mean, does that make yeah, sense? Okay. Just sort of to name those Jonathan, things. Do you think, um, so good. do you think, do you think some of that gains extra fuel from, uh, just a sort of growing anxiety about, about like, even if you, if you, if, if for the U S for example, if the U S felt, it felt very Christian or at least people perceived it that way and it feels less Christian. Do you think like anxiety sort of like adds its energy to that you know so now, now we got to get the youth because we're afraid that we're losing mm-hmm. you know, losing losing market share i mean i mean I, mm-hmm. t- I hate to use that word but oh well that is this is obviously i mean part and parcel of all this when you talk about evangelicalism is is the loss of of um cultural cachet or cultural influence and because so again but you can't you can't you can't separate these things because you have the glorification of youth culture animating the west youth are now empowered, right? So what youth want are the things that we, that's why, that's why like 50 year olds wear American Eagle, right? I mean, it's like, or why your grandmother knows who Beyonce is there that youth have the power of sort of shaping, driving the culture, driving the conversations, driving art, driving music, driving entertainment. And in the church, uh, this similar thing is true. We think if we can capture young people, we're in, we perhaps unconsciously, we're capturing some sort of cultural power that we have the cool people in our church. It's why certain churches, if you have Justin Bieber showing up, somehow you feel like you're, you must be doing it right if Justin Bieber is showing up, mm-hmm. right? But if like 17 grandmas with walkers come in, mm-hmm. we don't see that in the lens and go, oh, you're doing, you must be doing it right. Mm-hmm. But, but when someone who's young, attractive, wealthy and powerful shows up. So I think there's just should be a naming of the ways in which these, these, um, 
and I would say not Christian, in some ways anti-Christ powers, are animating our collective mindset. They've been overlaid into our ecclesiologies, and we've sort of adopted those. So there, there are many ways in which we're, we're being quite worldly, but we've wallpapered it with this like Jesus mentality, right? Because, because you've, got, you've got all of this, this church symbolism that, that you've borrowed and you've, you've combined with kind of these, these, um, these cultural movements. And, and I guess I would just challenge a lot of those things. But to go back to your question, all of these things I've, I think are connected to this feeling of loss. And, I, and actually, if you think about you know, I always say when I, when I coach um, authors, I always say um, emotion creates emotion. If you don't feel something, you don't do something. And so like when, when people are writing headlines, for example, I'll say, don't just think about what are you saying. Think about what is the person who reads that feeling because if they don't feel it, they won't click it, they won't read it, et cetera. So you have to think about the emotions and there are primary emotions that drive internet traffic and clicks and different things. I'm not saying you chase clicks and I get this and throw your stones, listeners. But <laughs> all this to say, you have to feel something. And I think... I think that we're not we're not taking captives the ways in which we're we're using or manipulating feelings or we're borrowing those those um, sorts of things from culture and that those are driving our ecclesiological decisions. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I would my thought. And and by and to maybe draw this full, I'm not going to hog the microphone, but one of the primary drivers, primary emotions that will drive emotion, fear, yeah. mm-hmm. loss. All of these things, yep. right? And 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 the and not just the feeling of failure, but the feeling of failure subsequent to a feeling of success, right? right. So so one of the most difficult right. things to accept is failure, yep. and one of the most difficult things to accept is success. But it's yep. if you get it in that order, success and then failure, yep. it's crippling. So what you have is is you have a church that with televangelists and Ronald Reagan, they they felt this immense success. And now they feel this immense failure. And that has triggered us in a way that we're sometimes unconscious of, uh, politically, socially, uh, ecclesiologically, etc. And I don't think you can have a conversation without acknowledging those backdrops. That's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. You should write a book or something sometime. <laughs> Maybe I will. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. There's a first endorsement. Mm-hmm. So... Rohr says um, that all great spiritual traditions say that the way of growth happens either by love or suffering. Mm. And so the way of love obviously leads us to growth, but usually it's, it's mm-hmm. suffering, it's loss. And if the emotion that churches are feeling these days is loss, we're losing political cachet, as you would say, uh, you're, you're losing dollars, you're losing butts and seats, you're, you're losing, how do you reframe loss as an opportunity for church to grow? How as how church leaders do you think actually... The way of Jesus is not saving your life, but losing your life. Not of keeping it, but letting it go. How, how, how do we as church get to that point? The, I'm, I'm not sure. The thing that I would observe is, if that is all true, I think a lot of our churches are in a ton of trouble because we don't have the tools to engage loss. Um, if you, if you are a part of a, an evangelical megachurch, when's the last time you did a lament? Mm-hmm. Um, when's the last time you did a confession of sin? When's the, last, when's the last time you did anything but triumphantly thank God for being great and making us great too? Like that. Yeah. Um, and it's not an, yeah, it's just our only tool. Maybe it's back to that uh, 
um, that uh, well-balanced meal. We really only have a couple foods, and they're great foods, but we need so much more. So. And, and you know, it's, uh, I love what you're saying because I was, I was in staff uh, at Mega Church, not to, you know, I'm, I'm saying things that are consistent or generally consistent, which is um, a PR culture has obviously, and business culture, corporate culture, PR culture, all of these things have affected mega church culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything's a positive spin, right? Yep. If you didn't take up enough money that week, you want to spin it. If you have to let go of somebody because of some issue, you got to spin it. So there's all the spin happening in, in mega church land. But there's not a lot of corporate grief, yeah. and there's not, a, there's not um, those tools, those muscles are kind of atrophied for yep. corporate grief. But what's interesting is, when you can grieve corporately, you know, ask, ask anybody, if you've ever lost a loved one, and like, let's say that Annie and I know someone who dies. If we grieve, and she, if she grieves and I grieve, and we do it together, it brings us closer together, that there's something transformative about the nature of grief that draws people together and unifies them. Yep. And in many ways, yep. we're not a unified church because we're not a grieving church, because we're not a lamenting yep. church. Yep. And that spin we think has served us in the short term, it's really hurt us, Big C Church, in the long term, I, I think. We, we, we've been trying to uh, just, just think about the things that we would identify as healthy in the life of a person, like in following Jesus as a person, like translating those into our communal identity. Mm. And it's, it's kind of a simple idea, I guess, but like... like talking to a person I would say there's times when you should right like you should make the move that that takes you into obscurity because in that maneuver there's some real life waiting for you or whatever right or um you should be another one for me is like like I feel like um it's really easy for churches to only do generosity when it's for like give to the entity right and so um but I would look at an individual person and be like if the only definition of generosity in your life is when you raise funds for yourself like, if that's the only time you use that word, that, that we would all, like, quickly and easily identify that as a problem, right? Sure. But, um, but it's amazing. Maybe, like, in the conceit of, like, well, we believe the church is sort of in, intrinsically important because it does all this stuff, and so whatever makes the church survive is sort of ergo good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get to a point where if you're like, well, here's another one. We took, a, we took a week off a month ago for our church. We just shut everything down. No gatherings. And I've, this is the first thing I've done where I've had a number of people tell me I'm an idiot. With South, like people I love, people I respect, people who I trust, people inside our church and outside. But we had volunteers who were burnt out, and we were getting ready to go into the fall. And uh, and for me, the filter was: Would I tell a person to take a day off? Of course. But the church would never take a Sunday off. And anytime I want to watch, anytime we start saying there's one path for the church and another path for Christian maturity or something like that. I think that's sort of a warning sign for me right now. That's really good. Yeah, because you move to institu- institutional well-being at the mm-hmm. cost of individual well-being. Yeah, and I, I think then ultimately, what does institutional well-being even mean, right? Is that really a, a, yeah. an institution that's experiencing well-being, right? Yep. Even if the numbers are going up. Yep. I mean, as the mega church attender in the group, <laughs> you know, our church just went through a pretty serious grieving process, and we did walk in. I mean you were there you can say if we didn't but I do feel like as a family we walked into it a little and so I guess my question would be what what's that first step for a big church is it my podcast but what's that first step for a big church mm-hmm. a mega church that needs to embrace grieving well as a family mm. what did you do 
What did, what did Crosspoint do? The question is, what did Crosspoint do? <laughs> I'll just say, you know, I'm, I get this little sliver of Crosspoint from right. being there for a couple Sundays a month through that season. Yeah. I mean, I guess I found, um, at least what I got exposed to was that your leaders were really quite uh, transparent mm-hmm. about their... Um, I, so I remember getting on the plane my first trip to go preach at Crosspoint like a month after you lost your founding pastor kind of abruptly and under circumstances you wouldn't want. And uh, I remember on the plane thinking, I don't know what I'm walking into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have taken this gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just walked in and met uh, a lead team at Crosspoint who were um, uh, really willing to be broken and to communicate that. And um, whether it was you know behind the scenes or from the stage... I, I don't know where they found that courage or what taught them that that was the right thing to do, but mm-hmm. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I think that really served Crosspoint well. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, two thoughts. One, I wonder if the, some of the baby sip steps begin with space, creating space. Um, because if a community is lamenting, the only way to stop them is to be relentlessly loud and fill up all the space. But when you offer some space what's really going on is going to come to the surface. So I think to just create space for it to surface and then to affirm it. Like you're in church and you're not relentlessly happy. Praise God. So glad you're here and so glad you're part of the human experience. You know, Because I think that's the scary thing is saying to a mega church pastor, now tell everyone to be sad publicly. Yeah. And they're like, but for the last 15 years, yes. what, what has worked, quote, quote, is not that. And so I think, I think baby steps are really helpful to say space is as important as totally shifting direction. Yeah, yeah. And um, the other thing is I think especially we, we were finding at the practice that people need to be pretty remedially taught how to lament. All of us, including us on the leadership team, we were like, we'd look around the circle, we'd be like, have you ever done a service of lament? And and 100% of the people in the circle said no. And so last Lent, we did all six weeks on lament. And week one was just, why? Why even lament? Week two is, what is biblical lament? Is it just complaining? Is it, you know? And then week three, Jenna Perrine, um, she led, she's, she just got, uh, um, she's studying the intersection of, of mental health and spirituality. And she led us through a nine-step process of how to write a biblical lament. And it was, it was uncomfortable, and it was beautiful, and then the next week, we were encouraged to do around tables and share our lament with someone in our, in our life. So anyways, but we were just so surprised as we started talking about none of us really have skills to do this well. And so I think... What uh, was the response from the participants who were sharing their grief in church and lament for the first time? Um, <laughs> surprisingly, quiet. <laughs> um, not a lot of... Not a lot of hugs after the service, not a lot of like, thank you for this. But we just did a kind of end of the season, uh, kind of we're in a transition as a community. And I would say six out of 10 stories about what did you, what happened in you in the practice was space for lament, space for lament, mm-hmm. space for lament. And we need, we know we need to do something with our pain, but we don't know what to do with it. So. One of uh, the people that I pretty much trust, whatever he says, is a guy named Richard Beck, who's a psychologist. You guys know Richard? Yeah, mm-hmm. as you should. So he, 
is a psychologist, teaches with my dad at Abilene Christian University, very involved in uh, church in Abilene, and he also teaches at a uh, prison, French Roberts Prison in Abilene. And so he goes there, and he's doing the lament stuff and to a bunch of inmates, and they say, Richard, we already know that life sucks. Um, Let us sing some of the hymns. Let's do some celebratory stuff. And he said the lament stuff that works in kind of like these circles isn't for them because they, they're living in lament. And mm. so you have these two different experiences of, this is in Eugene Peterson's new book, which I know Jonathan read cover to cover when he did the interview. Um, he talked about in the time of Jesus, people were afraid to show that they were happy because they thought the gods would smite them. Now people are afraid to show that they're not happy because they think everyone thinks that they're a failure. Mm, mm-hmm. And so you have people who want to come to the megachurch and get, give me the, the pep rally. Let me tell you how happy I want to be perceived as being. And you have some people who are down in the depths and go, I, I really just need the cheerleader to say, keep going, you can do this. And so there's like the weird stream of there's a place for this to, to lament, but there's also a place that some, like, some of us really need the, the Sunday morning celebration. And I think that's the balanced meal you're talking about. Yeah, and, and you know, when I, when I moved into a, I guess you'd say, a more practice-based expression of church, um, the one thing that shocked me was a Good Friday service. Mm. And we did, you'll, you would know the word, it starts with a T, but the kind of service, you know, you blow out the candles. T- yeah. t- say it again? Tenebrae? Tenebrae, yes. No, tenebrae. Yeah, what? Royal Tenebrae. Yeah, so you royal tenebrae. And then we sort of enact the... Yeah, you kind of enact it, the darkness, and then you leave in silence. Mm -hmm. And it's completely dark. You're blowing the candles out with each movement. And um, it's like being at a funeral, and I was just... I mean, my shirt was wet. And never... You know, even in in most evangelical megachurches, if you have a Good Friday service, it's just another resurrection service, basically. It's all resurrection. All all resurrection all the time, right? It's always celebrations and 10th anniversaries and whatever. And, And then you've got kind of like, you know, like your monastic friends. And they're... And they're... Man, they love the suffering and the ashes and sackcloth. And those are two... Crucifixion and resurrection, theologically and ecclesiologically, are two two sides of the same coin. And I think the human tendency based on maybe it's personality set or whatever yep. is to emphasize one at the exclusion of the other. And depending on where you are in your life stage, but I would say for most wealthy white evangelicals in America, America. it is the, re- the resurrection side of the coin that gets all the airtime and the crucifixion as much as we like to pretend we're sort of people of the cross. Yep. It's the crucifixion side that doesn't get much play. So good. I, I, so, uh, yep. I know we're kind of painting a broad stroke here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I was working at Granger, one of my coworkers, there's a tech director forum with people from the churches we've all worked at and, and other really large churches in the United States, the guys that pr- produce on the technical side of the service. And they, he came back and he was laughing because he named um, a couple of churches who are known for their theological disposition sort of around a, a neo-reform uh, paradigm. And they were laughing because like, at the church I was at, we started a Good Friday service while I was there, and it was really beautiful, but the energy went into Easter. And they were laughing because some of these guys, they were joking about how at their churches, they put all the energy into the Good Friday service, and it's dark, and, it's, and they, have, they have nothing for Easter. And it just like telegraphs that operative theology, right? And I love that you're talking about like having both. Back to the balanced meal, back to the mm-hmm. both sides. Yep. But, I, but I, like we're painting a broad stroke. I will say, I feel like I've seen in some megachurch context some of the most beautiful lament 
and space. I mean, I, ha- I have seen that. You know, I, I don't know that it's like a perfect correlation, but I hear, I hear the, the, the tendencies that we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's a good corrective. Obviously, not every megachurch is the caricature that might sound like I might have described earlier because that's not the case, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but the balance meal, and I, I, to, to steal your metaphor, which mm-hmm. I'm assuming we'll fully understand next August when your book <laughs> <laughs> comes out. Yes. Uh, Jonathan, as a person who's able to use the word zeitgeist in a podcast, um, um, <laughs> what else do we need to be watching for? We've got to wrap up in a minute. Tell us what's going to happen in the next 10 years of church in 30 seconds. Yeah, just that. Oh, good grief. What will happen in the next 10 years of church? Well, you're seeing the decline of denominationalism. I think that certainly is true. Uh, I think you're going to see increased theological diversity. I think that's part and parcel of the downfall of Christian retailing. I've written about this a little bit. But you're you're having the elimination of um, theological gatekeepers. And so as you've got more now of a flat retail space, there are there's an opportunity for people with and typically marginalized theological perspectives to access mainstream consumers in a way that they haven't before. So you don't have to like sign the Baptist faith and message in order to go into a bookstore. Now you can just go onto Amazon, and if enough people like it, they can share, um, they can talk about that. I think um, we're obviously seeing massive shifts on uh, about sexuality and gender. Uh, that will for sure be the forefront, I think, of of uh, future conversations moving forward. Sorry, my, my, my voice is cracking. It's not that I hit puberty. I'm still waiting on that. <laughs> um, so I'd say sexuality and gender is going to be, is going to be uh, huge. Uh, transgender issues are, are going to be big. Um, we really haven't even wrapped our arms around it. We don't even understand it. We're already coming up with positions about it. Just so funny, you know, um, Solomon talks about it's a shame to a person to leap out in front and, and give a statement before they understand an issue. And uh, we're already doing that. It's funny how history repeats itself. So uh, I think that's going to be something big that we're both going to be understanding and trying to, to formulate a quote-unquote Christian perspective, whatever that means, or biblical perspective, um, whatever that means. And I think there's a, a big conversation happening that's just really emerging um, about hermeneutics and how do you interact with the Bible. I mean, you know, we had, we had this sort of um, influx of, of books, and, and for a while in the church it was all sort of defenses of, of inerrancy. That was big, you know, since the 1970s, 80s, and, and 90s, that was a big sort of... Um, post-enlightenment impulse. And now you're seeing the, the, the tides rolled out the other way. So you've got, you know, some of the biggest books on the Bible were not written by Gordon Fee. They were written by Pete Enns and Adam Hamilton and Rob Bell. And, you know, even I was reading this book by Brian Zahn, which, which is supposed to be about God, wrath, and judgment. Really, it's a book about the Bible and how you read the Bible. And it's been published with a major evangelical publisher. There are people now that are, it's, it's no longer heresy to uh, have a more nuanced view of hermeneutics and exegesis. And that's really new, actually. Uh, so I think, I think Bible, sexuality, gender, denominationalism, and then obviously the rise of liturgical practices and historical expressions of church, um, that, those are all going to be kind of on the the forefront for the next 10 years from where I sit, at least. So you mentioned uh, Adam Hamilton, Pete Enns, Brian Zahn, Rob Bell. Of those four, which one has the best chance of getting in heaven? 
Which one? Well, first I'd have to say, first I have to figure out. I have to ask Rob Bell if there is a heaven. I don't even know, so I'm not sure. It has to be something in order to yeah. get to that something, right? Okay, Jay, would you like to do the ad on the way out? Would you like to do the closing? <laughs> sure. Who's this podcast brought to us? By? Podbean. Yeah. Now you started. When you started your church, wait, it's not it's not brought to us by CrossFit. No, (laughs) Luke is brought to us by CrossFit. Luke is brought to us by CrossFit. Yeah, that's by CrossFit. Thank you, you. and and uh, American Apparel shirts size medium. (laughs) 